The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll begin our study. Lord, thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you for the chance we have to assemble here in this place and know that that we're going to meet with um, other brothers and sisters in Christ who can help us in our pilgrimage, help help us as we walk uh, with you. And I pray that you would strengthen me uh, to teach now as we study Christian contentment this week. Uh, God, give us grace to learn the lessons that you would have for us to learn, that our demeanor, our disposition, as we go through things in life that we cannot control, that our demeanor really does matter to you and that you will give us all the help we need. So give me grace to make things clear in all of us as we talk and think together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we were in the middle of a study last week, and we're going to continue and try to finish that this week. These are some of the practical steps that Burroughs gives right after defining Christian contentment. I'm going to add my own at the end of the class. I thought it'd be helpful this morning as I sketched out where we're heading in this course so that you know what's up, what's coming over the next number of weeks, God willing. Uh, We should always say that if the Lord uh, allows us to live and if we have the time, this is what I'd like to do. So next week, God willing, I'd like to go through the topic of how Christ teaches contentment. So we're going to be in Christ's school. We're going to learn from him and find out. um, Now, Burroughs opens up that topic, but just goes in a very different direction than I think I would have done. So I'm borrowing his title, but I wrote my own kind of study. Um, and so we're going to talk about that fundamentally, the idea that Christ is the vine and, and that we're the branches, and apart from him, you can never be content. He is the source of contentment. And so we're going to look at that, but he has a lot more to say than that. We're going to talk specifically next week of how Christ helps us to ward off uh, thieves of contentment, such as anxiety, does a lot of work against anxiety in Matthew chapter 6, and really desires to help us be content in any and every situation. And there is no better role model ever for uh, a, a supernatural contentment and amazing trials than Jesus. So that'll be next week. Uh, we'll, we'll be in Christ's school of contentment. Then the uh, f- following week, uh, I'm going to talk about the excellence of Christian contentment. Uh, Burroughs says that Christian contentment is the glory or the excellence of a Christian. In other words, you cannot do any better in this world than displaying this, this uh, content spirit. And that's especially true if you're going through severe afflictions or trials. So we'll make a case for that being the, the way that you glorify God the most um, in any and every situation to be content, that that is an excellent thing. That's going to end up being very important for the final week when I talk about how it is that we practically and spiritually um, pursue contentment. Um, one of the first things that you should do is to see how beautiful and excellent contentment is and how much you should desire it. You should set it as a treasure to be pursued. Uh, The second step we'll talk about in that final week is to acknowledge that you don't have it. Um, you know, to acknowledge deficiency. We'll, we'll get there as we go through week by week. Um, but those are the kind of first two steps, I would say, just in your own heart, say, this is an excellent, beautiful, marvelous state of soul. I want it. And I'm going to set this in front of me as a lifelong goal to learn the secret of being content in any and every situation. Secondly, I'm not. <laughs> I really am not, and I need to grow in this area. So those are, uh, and then the third is, as we said, Apart from Christ, we can do nothing so that that in our morning quiet times, we're abiding in him and and ready for the day. 
Uh, so we'll get to all that. That's the final week. I'm already kind of stealing my own thunder for the last week. All right, uh, February 4th, I, I think it would be good to, uh, hate to say it, but go negative. Spend the entire time on the evils of a murmuring and complaining spirit. So it's not just that we're attracted positively like a magnetic pole toward, toward excellence. We should be repulsed by the evils of discontent. We should find it to be a, a disgusting and repulsive state. We don't want to be complaining people. We don't want to have to be rebuked by God. We can see in, the, in, in Israel, in the wandering in the desert, how sternly God dealt with Israel when they murmured and complained against him. This is a, an evil state of soul. <clears throat> it's painful to go through that study. I'm not saying ahead of time, boy, I'm looking forward to that. When I did this thing with the missionaries over the summer, I did three different area, area group meetings, uh, like retreats, and the missionaries were so excited about the topic, and then it kind of went sideways for them. Uh, <laughs> And then they felt like I had been like a hired assassin hired by the, those that were running the mission to come in and kind of tell them to stop complaining. Uh, and I'm like, I didn't talk to anybody. I'm just saying this is something we all deal with. Um, but it can be pretty painful to find out just how common it is for us to murmur against God, honestly. It's a common thing. It's not occasional. That things come in our lives, in the environment of our lives, and, and we don't like it. It's too hot, too cold, too this, too that, whatever. And we want to set it, and it's not working. And then we start to cry out against God and find that he's dealt with us unfairly. And, and then, we're, you know, that's the opposite of the excellence of the Christian soul. It's, it's almost sometimes the worst we can be. But it's just going to be helpful to look at it. And if you end up feeling convicted by that, may the conviction be genuine. May it be of the Holy Spirit, not trying to make anyone feel guilty but, but we want to be healed. And so Jesus said, I, I, I'm not here for the healthy. I'm not here for the righteous. I've come to call the sinners to repentance. So for us to look at that, the evils of a murmuring, complaining uh, spirit, and then, and then to look at therapy, honestly, to say, look, God didn't come to just tell us how bad we are, but to heal us. So um, that's what we're going to do February 4th. And then February 11th, this is a topic that I don't think Burroughs addresses directly talks a little bit about it, but it's, I think it's helpful. And that's contentment in marriage and parenting or in family life. Um, so that we would find ourselves, as if, we're, if we're married people, married uh, husbands or wives, that we would be content with our spouses, that we'd be content with what God's provided for us. We can see the evils of discontent in that, how it leads to a wander, wandering heart that leads to the destruction of the marriage. And so that if we actually are content with what God has provided, an imperfect, sinful person, but still a sister or a brother in Christ that God's provided for us, that we would be content, express that contentment to God in prayer, live out that contentment in our marriage. It will be a very stable basis for a healthy marriage. Uh, also that we would, second half of that, if we have children, especially minor children, children that are growing, um, that we would teach them to be content, that we, they would not be wandering ADD-ish type folks that just can't ever settle in and do anything to the glory of God, which I think some of the technology is causing a whole generation of people that don't seem to be content even to be with you. But they're talking or texting or, or doing something. It's like, um, hi, I'm here. Um, let's have a time together. Um, but we can, we can see that, that we can actually teach our kids uh, the, the lessons of contentment. So family life, that's the focus on February 11th. And February 18th, I want to zero in on the topic of suffering in particular. And uh, we've talked about providence already, but this is the hardest of all. That's when, when things are very, very difficult, when there's extreme affliction, extreme, extreme suffering. We understand that when you're going through that, that God has to some degree put you on a pedestal. And he's wanting you to shine a light in a dark place. Nothing is more difficult than to be content uh, like Paul was. Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. Paul in prison again when he's writing Philippians. This kind of thing. That we would prepare ourselves for that. 
And the nth degree is to be content while dying, honestly. To know yourself dying and still be content in the next world. To finish the race with endurance. To fight the good fight and run the race and finish the race right to the end. That you would be content even in your own death. And not charge God with wrongdoing. But that you would give a witness to your family as they stand around your bedside. That you give a witness to the medical professionals. That you would die well. That's the secret of contentment. So that's like your final exams. Not in this class. I'll just be done teaching. We'll go on to the next BFL topic. But you're getting ready for your own final exam and that you would end your life well uh, in suffering contentment. All right. Finally, the final week, February 28th. Um, so one kind of topic that's come to my mind, it came uh, from some uh, missionary, something that he said uh, to me this summer. He said, I never really thought of contentment as something that we should even want. You know, I mean, the world is filled with people that are lost and dying, going to hell. Why should we be content with that? It's like, well, I think you're misunderstanding contentment. So I wrote a chapter. I've not finished editing it, but it's called Contentment is Not Complacency. So there are some things that God does not want us to be complacent about or okay with, etc. It's, it's intolerable um, that there are people that don't know the name of, of Christ and that die never having heard the name of Christ. We should feel that that should motivate us. We should care about missions, unreached people groups. We should not be complacent or content with sin in our lives. That's not what contentment's about. It's not like, well, I'm fine as I am. I'm complacent. I've reached a plateau and I'm, I'm satisfied with my sanctification. So internal journey of holiness, external journey of gospel advance. We are not content if that's what you mean. We're not okay with how things are. Status quo is not okay. We're going to pursue growth in those areas to the glory of God. We're going to relentlessly pursue them. We're not okay with sin in our lives. We're not okay with other people in miserable conditions and natural disasters. You know, we're, we're like learning some kind of stoic or Buddhist kind of detachment from the world where we don't care about what's going on. That's not what contentment is about. Contentment is much more about adverse circumstances in the journeys not deterring us from our past so that when you go out as a missionary and like the like Adnarm Judson did and you lose a wife and you lose kids and whatever that you are able to continue on seeking the lost there in Burma contentment actually then aids zeal for the glory of God uh, that so it's just it's just a misunderstanding of what contentment is not complacency we're not okay with things as they are does that make sense and then finally on that last week we're going to talk about my version of practical steps which I already began to hint at it so just daily habits or we could call like best practices that will prepare you uh, to be content in any and every situation things you do in your quiet time and then the way what you have to do throughout the day uh, fighting for contentment every moment because this is what I believe I think you're basically going to set up a walled fortress in your soul and then the world of flesh and the devil are going to come after you all day long every single day because the last thing Satan wants is for you to be content in any and every situation. He wants you utterly miserable. So you're going to have to fight for it, and we'll talk about all that. So that's the rest. Of, you don't even need to come. I've just given you the Reader's Digest version of the whole rest of the course. So, but let's dig into last week's handout. Same handout as last week. This is week five now, but <clears throat> we only got to, you know, just a very little bit of it. Uh, just by way of review, I'm going to do this just really quickly, um, but... If, if you were to go to any text on Christian contentment, you would go to Philippians 4, 12 and 13. So let's begin by reading that. Could someone read that for us? All right. So Christian contentment is a secret to be learned. It's not, it's not automatic. It is not given that you, if you are a Christian, have learned that secret. Okay. However, Paul does say he has learned it. So it's not impossible. It's not a, it's not a miracle. Um, it is something that can be learned. It is something that is learned by experience 
and by grace. You have to live through it. We would, we would imagine any immediate convert to Christ, somebody who's converted in the last 24 hours, has not learned the secret of Christian contentment. It's just impossible because you have to go through any and every situation as a Christian to learn. It takes a, a long time. But Paul does say he has learned it. The word content means self-sufficient. That's the Greek word, literally. Um, and so we understand that not in a worldly or independent sort of way that we don't need God, not at all. But having God in Christ, having Christ, we need nothing else. That's really what it means. So if we have God, if we have Christ, we need nothing else in this world. We don't even need to continue to be alive. Uh, we don't need anything from people in our lives. We don't need anything. Uh, we don't need to be commended or noticed or thanked or, or praised. We don't need the, the money that the Philippians sent. That wasn't necessary. Any of these things, none of those things are truly, genuinely necessary. What I need is Christ. And having Christ, I don't need anything else. And that's a very strong, stable way to live your Christian life. Then if things do come in your way, if someone does notice the service you do and thank you for it, it's just, it's just an extra blessing. It's something that, but you don't live on it. You're not addicted to it, etc. Contentment. In any and every situation, that's Philippians. Then we uh, have this doctrine here that Burroughs give. To be well-skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian. So I love Burroughs. I think he's amazing. I think glory and excellence are almost close to synonyms. I don't, I don't know the difference. So I might actually trade one. If I could have our brother say, Jeremiah, great book. If I could just, can we trade either glory or excellence for delight? If I could change one of those three words, it would be delight. Because that's different, a little bit different. The delight of the abiding Christian life is this contentment. I mean, almost by definition, to learn to be happy in Christ that's delightful. Conversely, conversely, to be discontent, kind of obvious, is not delightful. Okay, If you are discontent in circumstances, you are not delight, delightful and you're not delighted. So just the joy aspect I would stick in there. But it's the glory or excellence of a Christian. It's the best that you can ever be. It's the most radiant you'll ever be, especially if you're in extreme circumstances, if you're in afflictions, that every human, any and every human being would see as a trying, hard circumstance, and still here you are. That's the glory of a Christian. But then that first word, duty, what does that mean to you? It is the duty of every Christian to be content. What does that word mean to you? Obligation. Obligation. Okay. To Something to strive for. All right, Any, anyone else? Think about it. Like, we could look up at Paul as a specialist, right? He's like the top 0.01 percentile, right? So we could actually excuse ourselves from this topic. Well, that's just Paul. I don't need to learn the secret of being content in any and every situation. Jeremiah Burroughs would say, what about that? False. <laughs> this is your duty. You have a responsibility to learn to be content in any and every situation. This is something you must pursue. And I agree. This is something for all of you. And it's for everybody that's in other BFL classes. And it's everybody, that, all, all Christians that aren't even in this church. Every Christian in the world needs to learn this. So whether you're reading Burroughs' book or not, he's just trying to help you do your duty. We have a responsibility to God to be content in any and every situation. To be delighted not just with who God is, not just with what God has commanded, but with what God has provided for you, both in terms of things that you find attractive and things that you find challenging, that you actually delight in everything that God ordains for your life. You have a duty to, to think, think that. So this is incumbent on all of us. It'll be incumbent on you a year from now when you're not taking this class. 
It'll be incumbent on you the rest of your life to show Christian contentment in any, every situation. All right, well, what is it? Someone read the definition for us. Thank you. So I break this uh, uh, definition in two parts. First, it's a frame of spirit, a demeanor, a disposition. By the way, there are many Christian demeanors in the Bible. I'm not going to list them all, but there's so, so much of the New Testament is written to get you to have the right demeanor. Like hope, for example, is a demeanor, right? Um, joy is a demeanor of spirit. These are, these are just frames of spirit. And uh, so the Lord is working to give you, let's say in Romans 5, assurance of your salvation. He wants you to be confident that your sins are forgiven. And so he reasons with us that we've been justified by faith and we have access uh, to, to God by faith. And when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more now that we're his sons and daughters, will he intercede for us and save us to the end? There's so much that Paul does in Romans 5 to give us assurance. He wants you to have confidence that you are a Christian. He wants you to have assurance of salvation. It's the frame of spirit. All right. So there's this, uh, this frame of spirit. It's defined with four adjectives, sweet as opposed to bitter or sour. Okay, it's an inward thing as opposed to something outward, external only, which is acting, an acting job. It's not that. That's hypocrisy, where you're showing something on the outside, but you're not feeling it on the inside. So it's an inward thing. It's quiet as opposed to roiling and churning. And we'll talk about that when we talk about murmuring and discontent, which is raging against God like a storm in your heart. It's not that way. It's quiet. Like when Jesus says, peace, be still, and your soul is quieted under God. And it's gracious. In other words, you can't do this on your own. Apart from Christ, you cannot do it. It's a supernatural work of God's grace. It's also a partnership. Something you have to realize about sanctification. We are, we are in partnership with the Holy Spirit on our sanctification. It's a joint effort. Not so with justification. There's no joint anything. You just receive forgiveness. Receive justification by faith. But now sanctification, you work out with fear and trembling. And this is a subset of that. Contentment's a part of sanctification, so you have to work it out with fear and trembling. It doesn't come easily. It's a partnership. But what Burroughs is saying by the word gracious is, apart from the sovereign grace of God, you will not be content. It's not something you can drum up on your own. You're not going to turn over a new leaf or make a New Year's resolution that throughout 2018 you will be content. It's not going to work. Actually, that, that probably is helpful, but it's not enough. You've got to fight for it. All right, so that's the first half. Second half has to do with God's disposal. Can someone remind us what that word disposal means? Yeah, his will. I would, I would say a good, a good substitute would be the word decree or decision. His, his, yeah, and it's absolutely providence. So it's God's sovereign decision about you. And what does that cover in your life? Topher, what does that cover in your life, his disposal in your life? Everything. Any and everything. I mean, down to the details, how many hairs are on your head, you know, what sparrows fall to the ground that you see with your own eyes or don't see. I mean, every single thing in your life has been disposed of by God. And we could argue, though it's a mystery to us, before the creation of the world. God's never surprised. And he has decreed and disposed of every aspect of your life before you were even born. All the days ordained for you were written in God's book when? before one of them came to be. So the idea that God has disposed of any and everything is foundational to Christian contentment. Imagine if only 90% of things in your life were disposed of by God. You could imagine that that 10% would cause you agony. And you'd find that it would be slipping too. It's moving up to 15 and 20 and 30% before after a while you think God doesn't do anything for you. 
So, no, actually God disposes of everything, and so that's God's disposal, and you back it up, his wise and fatherly disposal, his decisions about you are very wise, far wiser than yours would be. I know you may disagree from time to time. You think you have a better way to do your life than God, apparently, but it's not true. God is very wise, and he's very fatherly, meaning he loves you. Everything he decrees for you is best for you. And we said, not kingly, but it's okay to say kingly because there God does what's best for his kingdom. But fatherly, he does what's best for his children. The two of them are the same. There's no difference. You are his kingdom. I mean, you have entered the kingdom of God and we, the people that he has redeemed, we make up his kingdom. And so they're the same thing, but it's sweeter, I think, and more attractive to say his wise and fatherly disposal. And what does it do? Christian contentment freely submits to it, not fighting it. You're freely yielding to an authority figure who is your heavenly father. You're, you're yielding to him freely, not under compulsion, and you're delighting in it. That's the whole definition, any and every condition. That's the definition, been over it every week. Um, all right, so now the question that Burroughs stops to ask in his book at that point, kind of early, interestingly, early, so like, what you're saying is good, I would like it, how do I get there? It seems impossible. It really does. And the more you look at the definition and then you compare it to your life, and then you look at other people and how they're living their lives, you realize this is a very rare jewel. It's rare in my life, seems to be rare in other people's lives. So how can it be done? And so he starts walking through that. So that's all introduction. Let's dig in and see. First of all, last week we saw a Christian is content uh, yet unsatisfied. So this touches a little bit on that complacency issue. But it gets to the value or lack of it of the whole world. Could someone read Matthew 16 for us just by way of review? Okay, so that's Jesus' teaching that the whole world is not even worth comparing with the value of your soul. So conversely, if God has given you your soul eternally, he has given you more than the whole world, right? And if you're a Christian, he has done precisely that. He has given you forgiveness for your soul. You will live in God's presence forever. Having that, then what is the whole world to you? See, it says nothing like a frothy bubble. All the nations of the earth are like dust on the scales and drop from the bucket. They don't mean anything. God then gives you things, wealth, opportunities, positions, and all that, just as part of his kingdom to serve you. It's just a temporary blessing that he wants you to use as a steward. That's all. If he gives you a lot more of the world, it wouldn't improve your, your life at all. It'd actually increase your burdens of stewardship that you need to be even wiser, not with five talents, but with ten talents, because God's given you even more, and he wants you to use it wisely. It's just a whole different way of looking at your life in the world. We brought up the C.S. Lewis quote last week. He who has Christ and all the world has no more than he who has Christ alone. So you keep thinking about that quote. It means the whole world is effectively nothing. So what Burroughs says here is that a contented Christian, you can give him bread and water and he's happy with that. Doesn't need anything more. But conversely, if you offered him the entire world, he wouldn't be happy with that. If that were going to be his eternal inheritance. Now, what would you rather have? Your soul in Christ's kingdom or the entire world and not your soul in Christ's kingdom. You know from Matthew 16, 26, you would make a wise choice. So you do not need the whole world. That's not what you need. You need Christ, etc. And so you're content even with just bread and water. That's what he's saying. A Christian is content and yet unsatisfied. Unsatisfied, you know why? Because we haven't come into our inheritance yet. We don't have it yet. We have foretastes. 
We have a deposit guaranteeing our full inheritance. We haven't come into our inheritance yet. Just like the patriarchs in Hebrews 11, we're going to die not having received the promises. We're going to die saying we believe with all of our heart that all of our best things are yet to come. We'll die that way. So we are unsatisfied. We haven't received our inheritance yet. It's yet to come. Isn't that a good way to live? It's a sweet way to live. I love that. It's a great way to die too. All right, so that's, um, that's last week. So we're just moving through. Um, and let's, let's go on to the next one. So that we talked about uh, contentment and uh, heavenly mindedness, but um, I just need to keep moving. Secondly, Christian comes to contentment by subtraction. What does that mean? You see the handout, B? What is subtraction? What does Burroughs think you should subtract from yourself in order to attain contentment? Desire. So Rick, how, how is that vital that we would actually have fewer desires? And, and just working, working, working on your desires until they equal what God's given you. Should you desire what God has given you? Oh, let's make this easy. Should I, as a husband, desire to be married to Christy? She would say yes. <laughs> you should desire what he has provided for you. You should want it. So you have to kind of whittle down your desires until they equal what God has actually provided to you. But hold on to them loosely because I don't know that she'll continue to be my wife one more day. Based on James, we should say, if the Lord wills, we will live. So I'm not dependent on that spouse for my contentment, but I, am, I do desire her and desire to be married to her. I desire to be father to my five kids. I desire, so I'm, I'm going to work on my desires until they equal out you know, what God has actually provided in this world, but not that they would become idols either. I'm going to keep on working on my desires until they're healthy and right. It's not okay to not have desires. That's a sin. Desiring God, the book, that's probably one of his main points. We are not made to have no desires. We're just made to have good desires. So we have to get rid of bad desires, excessive desires, ambitions that are not healthy. Get rid of desires that are hurting you because they really are hurting you. You'll be discontent when they're unfulfilled. So he says, just get, get rid of them. So how do we do that? How do you actually subtract desires? Let's say you are, in fact, desiring something that God would not have you desire. What do you do about it? That's so good. I think it's actually impossible. You know, Thomas Chalmers said, the expulsive power of a greater affection, that's how you do it. You don't just say, I cannot, will not desire these evil things neutrally, like just as an act of the will. Instead, supplant them with something that God actually is giving you and has told you is better. Focus on that. So that's what Bob's saying. With a better desire, a more godly desire. We all do. So subtracting desires from ourselves. Interestingly, this is somewhat like the Buddhist meditating people try to do. You know, get rid of desires, get rid of, you know. But they're just doing it. It's, it's a good idea, but it's based on a whole wrong spiritual foundation. We actually do need to be like that. Less of the world, less attached to the world. Non-attachment is what they say. But I think there's a rightness for us as Christians. Say, I'm just not needing these things. I don't need to have them. I'm not setting my heart on them. All right, thirdly, by adding another burden to himself. All right, so we just began touching on this last week. But Burroughs says this, the, way, uh, the world thinks the way to contentment and affliction is to be rid of your burdens. In other words, have the affliction removed. And that makes sense. And he's not saying there's anything wrong if you have a, the diagnosis of a tumor that's treatable, but the outcome is, is unclear, that you should not desire to be healthy physically. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is there's something wrong with that basic approach. That, that my basic approach is I must have this affliction removed. 
and when it's removed, then I can be content. That's not Christian contentment. Paul says he's learned to be content before, the, before it's been, been removed. That's what the world says. But now what he's saying is, I actually need to add a burden to me that I'm, I don't have, at least not sufficiently. I need to kind of increase a specific burden on my soul that maybe it's there, but it's not enough. I need to ramp it up. What is he talking about? What burden is he referring to? Sin. The sense of your own sinfulness. The weightiness of it the details of it, okay? That you should be aware that you are a great sinner who has been saved by greater grace. You are a great sinner that's been saved by even greater grace in Christ. Now, why would this, first of all, you can see how unhealthy it might be to do this in a wrong way. Well, let's get to that in a minute. Let's talk about a healthy way to do this. Why is this actually very helpful toward Christian contentment? To have a a very detailed, clear sense of how sinful you are now that you have been completely forgiven in Christ. Why would that be helpful for contentment? Amen. Did you all hear that? When we see how sinful we are and how good God has been to us in Christ, you almost could say, you know, you're not going to hell. You're going to heaven. You're not my enemy anymore. I've adopted you as my son or my daughter. Is all that enough for you? Answer, should be. Should be. It really, really should be. And, and I think the more you look at that, is Christ crucified and resurrected enough for you to be happy today or do you need something more? What more can I do for you? <laughs> You're like, oh, I feel kind of ashamed. Well, there is a good shame that comes with that. It's like, I shouldn't be that way. I have been forgiven 10,000 talents of sin. 10,000 talents. Do you remember when Jesus was talking about... Um, you know, he went to someone's house, I think his name was Simon, and, and he had a, a meal. Uh, and then this woman comes in and anoints him and weeps and washes Jesus' feet with her tears and dries him with her hair. And this guy's offended. And he says in his own heart, thinking his thoughts, not speaking out, said, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is that's touching him, that she's a sinner. And Jesus looks and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. I think it's so cool. If this man were a prophet, he would be able to read my mind. (laughs) Well, he can read your mind. He is a prophet. There was a certain money lender who uh, two people owed him money, one 50 denarii, the other 500, because neither one was able to pay him. He canceled both their debt. Which of them will love him more? It's an interesting parable. What's the answer? The one with the bigger debt. And then he applied it to the woman. She's sinned much. I know that. But she's been forgiven much. And look at all the love that's flowing the love that's flowing from the heart. Now, here's a puzzle for you. You, are you the 50 or the 500? What would you say? Don't answer, but ponder it. It's like, huh, what's the answer, God? Well, your debt's bigger than you think it is. So I would, I would do well to ramp up. If I think I'm a 50 guy, to ramp up to 100 or 200 so I can love more. Because that's what he says. The more you have a sense of the debt that was forgiven you, the more love is going to flow from your heart. So you actually should ramp up your sense of how much. He said it's 10,000 talents. Are you there in your own estimation? Do you think you're a 10,000 talent sinner? It's like, honestly, I don't. I put my, my thing at whatever. You see what I'm saying? It's like, well, then your estimation, your appraisal of your sinfulness is lower than God's. It would do you well to get it more realistic. Still forgiven now. Still adopted, still secure, but just a sense of the debt that was paid in your behalf. It's beneficial, right? 
oh God, would you give me a greater sense of my actual debt that's been covered. And by the way, it's not all been, it's not all even occurred yet. If you live another 27 years, you think you're going to be sinless? <laughs> you think God's going to be surprised? But I didn't realize it was going to be that big. Imagine like at a restaurant and then the bill comes like, whoa. <laughs> you know, the host at table looks at it and said, hmm, that's a bad moment for everyone that just finished the meal. It's like, can I help you out? Is there, I mean, pass the hat. It's like, I didn't think it would be this much. Do you think God's going to say that? I didn't realize that in your case, it was going to be this big. No, he knows exactly, but you don't. And so it's actually healthy to say, even in the last 24 hours, you have covered so many of my sins. You have been so good to me. I think Christians sometimes think because we're forgiven, we don't need to even be aware of our sins. It's just not even biblical. It's not even close to biblical. Of course you should be aware of your sins. Just know you're forgiven. But you should be aware of what you've been forgiven. So how will that help you be content? If you do this kind of healthy, adding a burden on of rightly appraising your sins, Jim, how would that help us be content? Absolutely. It, it, I mean, and, and God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So it's like, I want more grace. Do we need more grace? Yes. It says in James, he gives us more grace. You need more grace. And so if, if you meditate on your sinfulness in a healthy way, not in a morose, Christ-forgetting way, that's a bad thing. Oh, what a wicked person. I'm so sinful. I'm, and, but there's never any thought of Jesus in his atoning sacrifice. Or even worse, if you think about Jesus, but it's just his blood isn't enough for you. You're such a great sinner. It's like, that's so arrogant. His grace is like an ocean and your sin is like a fire. And it may be a bonfire or a match or a torch or a burning building, but it's still greater than all your sin. So don't think so greatly of yourself that you forget Jesus's infinite atonement. But still, you are even that person, I think, is underestimating their sinfulness. Even that woe is me person who's forgetting Jesus, they're still underestimating their sinfulness. You're actually, oh, morose person, a far greater sinner than you think you are. But apparently, and this is obvious, Christ is a far greater savior than you think he is. Anyway, there's a healthy way to do it. Now, let me ask you a question. Why would this theme, namely, you need to load up the burden of a sense of your own sinfulness, be particularly difficult for somebody in the midst of an extreme affliction or trial? For you to come and bring that to the hospital room or to the to the uh, graveside or whatever. You need to really have a sense of how sinful you are. That'll help you with your contentment. What would you think about that? Yeah, anyone else? Why would this be a particularly difficult message to bring to somebody who has received significant bad news and is struggling and suffering and perhaps heading toward depression and all that? You just need to load up your soul with a sense of your sinfulness. Any thoughts on this? Great, great answer. That's just bad timing. It's insensitive. So I'm doing that for all of you right now. I'm giving you this theme right now. Now you may be saying, you don't know what kind of week I've had. You're right, I don't. But you also know that I'm not personally sitting with just you giving you personally this instruction. I'm giving it to everybody in the room. So it's still somewhat mediated. So I think just to get this uploaded, because it is a true theme and it will help you. But maybe a friend doesn't come and bring you that theme while you're sitting there having just received the diagnosis. Instead, they weep with you and put an arm around you. And that's all. And just tell you that I love you and I'm here with you. That's enough. But down the road, if just months, even years later, there's still some bitterness about what happened and all that, it's like, you know, this might be a helpful theme for you. Just keep in mind, God has dealt with you graciously in, in your sin, just like all of us. So just some of these harder themes are good to upload ahead of time before you're in the, in the trial. Just get a sense of that. Does that make sense? All right, let's keep going. Um, fourth, by changing the affliction into something else. 
You make the affliction a positive good rather than a negative evil. This is a wise stroke from a master craftsman on your soul. That's what's going on here. It's not something that God's sending like a missile to destroy your life. He's actually sculpting you and he's applying the hammer and chisel. And, and when he gets done, you're going to be in, the conf in conformity to Christ. That's what's going on here. So you're actually just changing your entire perspective on it. Luther said, a, a Christian becomes then a mighty worker and a wonderful creator to create out of heaviness joy, out of terror comfort, out of sin righteousness, and out of death life. I remember Tim Pyron, who died of glioblastoma, he wrote in his journal, and I read this at his funeral, that he looked on his diagnosis like a diamond of many facets, and he just wanted to keep turning it and seeing different colors come off it. That's, that's an incredible work to change that diagnosis into a diamond. What a mighty worker he was. What an example to me. I want to be able to do that. So that's what Luther says. You've turned something that everyone else would see as a, an assault and a heaviness and, and something bitter into something beautiful that God's doing in your life. So that's incredible to change the affliction into something else. So two men, says Burroughs, may have the same affliction. To one it shall be as gall and wormwood, and yet it shall be wine and honey and delightfulness and joy and advantage and riches to the other. This is how we make sense of some of the confusing aspects of providence. One hurricane sweeps through a community, destroying hundreds of houses, and God is actually doing something different in each house. Christian's house, non-Christian house, both totally destroyed. God's intending something different and doing something different in the different families. It's incredible. Exact same trial, but different outcomes, different intentions, different everything. It's the same thing. Houses, every bit is destroyed. But for the Christian, it's a platform to witness. It's an opportunity for, to see God's great, greatness and his kindness. And you see, it's just a whole different thing. But it's the exact same thing. House destroyed by this hurricane. Does that make sense? It's incredible. It, makes, it, it, it then starts to show you how complex providence really is. It's not as simple as God is judging the city of New Orleans. It's not, that's just immature. It's just not, that's not complex enough. God's not doing some one thing to the whole big city. He's got something different intended for each person that he's shaping and molding. It's amazing. So uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 55, someone read that for us. So that's the ultimate turning of something bitter into something beautiful. It's like whatever happened to your victory and your sting, O death. Like one Puritan as he was dying says, this death, how have I looked at this beautiful doorway into heaven as some dark, vicious enemy and now instead it's become to me sweet as a bed of roses it's just a whole different perspective because my deathbed is my last few moments of suffering that i'll ever experience in eternity and then it's done it's just a whole different way of looking at things all right fifth by doing the work of your circumstances a Christian thinks, okay, well, how shall I come to be satisfied and content? What is the duty, the specific duty of this set of circumstances? I'm going to look at what is actually happening here, and I'm going to do the work that God has for me to do in this circumstance. You should then labor to bring your heart to quiet and contentment by setting your souls to work in the duties of your present condition. So God has done this for a purpose. He's, he's skillfully ordained this stroke on your life. And he set up almost like a little drama, a play with actors. Like, let's take a minor thing, like I mentioned last week. You, your car needs significant repair. And you're at the shop. What 
set of circumstances and what reactions do you think God has set up for you there? Help me out, putting it mildly, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Complain about the price they're charging and then after that witness to them. What do you all think about that strategy? Does that sound good? Dave, you're thinking not, okay? So don't complain at all about the money, okay? But know this, you probably wouldn't have hardly any interactions with them at all if they weren't repairing your car. Is there something that could be done with that? Yeah, so here it is. Like, God, would you please give me a chance to, to get to know a non-Christian today here in Durham that I don't know and somebody that you want me to share the gospel with? All right, at 10 in the morning, you find out you have significant car, car trouble. You're at the shop and you're talking to a non-Christian mechanic. Any chance the Holy Spirit said, you asked for this, this is what you wanted, right? <laughs> You have an opportunity to talk to the mechanic. Now, they have work to do, but they're going to talk to you somewhat because you're a customer. So they'll give you some time. It's kind of like how friendly the uh, servers are at the restaurant right before you decide what tip they're going to get. Have you ever noticed the, a great upswing in cheerfulness? And, and, you know, I always find that interesting. You know, you're going to get the same tip from me either way. Even if you serve me badly or, well, I've worked this through and you're going to get this. And it's the same every time. I don't say that. But um, at any rate. Yeah, I mean, you have a conversation, and they'll stand and chat and, and all that, etc. Use it. But the thing is, God has orchestrated, not just for evangelism, not just for evangelism, but I, like, I think it's helpful to keep thinking about the two journeys. Like, what have you done? You know, you've orchestrated this to do something in my soul. So like the car repair, what might he be doing in your soul in that you now have to spend $1,750 on your car that you didn't plan on spending? What might he be doing in your soul that will help you be conformed to Christ? Yeah, you don't need to worry about that $750 anymore. It's not yours. <laughs> it's been taken from you. Yeah, I mean, do that. Okay, so to make you less materialistic, less attached to money. Any other thoughts? Yeah, let me add some complexity to the scenario. Let's say the Lord's been kind of putting a burden on your heart uh, for supporting missionaries or missions in some way, and you've been deferring it, deferring it, deferring it, and then suddenly you get car repair bill. Could he be chastising you? And that's a unique set of stories. It's not the same in every case, but you've been waiting, you've been delaying. God's been saying, I want you to give, I want you to be generous. And you've been saying, no, no, no. He's like, all right, I'm going to take it anyway. And now you're not going to get any reward for it. So Lord, please forgive me that I didn't give the money you were leading me in my heart to give, something like that. So it could be a moment of repentance. I'm just saying it's different every time. So just do the work. So I think about it this way, Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God has prepared in advance that we should walk in them. That's providential language. So God has set up some good works for you. Now you're going to find in life, some of those good works, the circumstances of them will be distasteful to you. You didn't intend that. But God has actually set up good works for you. Does that make sense? So you're saying, God, what, what are the unique special works of this situation? So that will help you be content. You're now thinking like a servant, right? You're thinking like, God, you're the king, you're the father, I'm the, I'm the servant, I'm the, I'm the son or the daughter. What do you want me to do with this? That's a great way to be. That's a great way to be. Let me, let me tell, a, <laughs> tell a story about myself. Um, Back in Washington, D.C., years ago, a handful of years ago, I got two parking tickets in one day. The second one was 150 bucks. So there's this scam going on uh, there in D.C. where there's a lane you can park in until 4 o'clock. And then at 4.01, it's worth $150. All right? Now, maybe it's not a scam. There were signs. 
They weren't as prominent as they should have been, I think. But that I needed to move my car out of that lane right in front of the Smithsonian by 3.58 or so, and I didn't do it. The earlier one had been, uh, we were at the Holocaust Museum, and it was a timer thing, and I had it on my watch. I'm running back, missed it by two minutes, there's the ticket. I mean, the lady was right there. She was on the next car. She was just right there. So yeah, I missed it by two minutes, and that was, uh, that was cheaper. That's like 50, something like that. So the second ticket, um, can I put it mildly? I was carnal at that moment, the 150. Frustrated, and I was driving across the Potomac, make, trying to find a way to make a U-turn and come back and pick up my family. It was hot. It was July. I was like, God. And then the Lord came and convicted me that I had wasted 200 of His dollars. I was immediately healed. I remembered it's not my money, and that I had been a bad steward, and that I was free from worrying about it ever again. Just learned the lesson. So I said, Lord, would you please forgive me for spending your money so poorly? And help me to be wiser in the future and park well and not have this kind of thing. In Jesus' name. And I was done. I wasn't bitter or negative at all. I was a changed man. Because I did the work of the circumstance. In that case, was confession of sin. So there's different circumstances in every case. Does that make sense? Suppose it's, it's simply an injustice that would happen to you. There's a different kind of work you do there. Uh, there it was my fault. Suppose it was somebody else's fault. Like somebody hits your car and then takes off. And you got a dent. Now you have to handle it yourself. That's unjust. What, what are the works of the circumstance? Your kids are watching you at this moment. Maybe some other people are watching you. What work does God want you to do in this circumstance? It changes how you look at life. I'm a servant. You've orchestrated this. How can I serve you? Doing the work of the situation. All right, let's keep going. By melting your will into God's will. Burroughs says this. It's not by having your own duties satisfied, but by melting your will and desires into God's will. So that in one sense, he comes to have his desires satisfied, though he does not obtain the thing he desired uh, before. Still, he comes to be satisfied with this because he makes his will to be at one with God's will. So it's like, this is my will for you, says the Lord. It's like, yeah, well, this was my will for me. And there's a difference. Who should move? Well, let's be honest. Who is going to move? Somebody isn't going to move, and that's God. You know, I, I won't say much, but we, you know... We have had occasion to parent strong-willed kids from time to time. And, I, and I've said, look, you may have a strong will. Your will may be stronger than mine, but it's not stronger than God's. Nobody has a stronger will than God's. So God has a will for your life, and he's not moving. It's your job to conform your will to his. All right. Now, there's a beautiful verse uh, about this that, that just, I think, shows the journey of this. Someone read Psalm 37.4 an interesting verse. I remember I learned that one very early in my Christian life, and I started using it, you know, as a, as a key verse, you know. So, you know, how, how would be like a wrong way you could just use this verse? What do you think, Luke? How could we use this wrongly? What do you think? I really want that. Okay, so if I want to get that, what do I have to do? Delight myself in the Lord. So, God, I'm going to sing a few extra songs to you, and I'm going to have a longer prayer time and all that if you just give me, you know, the new X. All right, that is not what I think the psalm is about. <laughs> that it would be delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the carnal desires of your heart to meet all of your materialistic desires. That's not what the verse is. So how about this? Here's the next step. Try delight yourself in the Lord and he will assign you the desires of your heart. All right, if you delight in the Lord, he's going to give you the desires you should have. That sounds a little bit more right. 
still sounds a little rough, but at any rate, it's like, all right, I'm going to delight myself in the Lord, and you're going to give me a new set of desires, and I'll be happy with those. And I think, frankly, in the end, in contentment, that's where you're going to get. But there's an even better way to look at it. How about delight yourself in the Lord, and His desires will become your desires? That's pretty sweet there. That, at that point, Lord, I, I just want to desire what you want for me. So all of the detailed things, the things you desire, I, and Christ in Gethsemane is the best pattern of this. Father, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me, yet not my will but yours be done. What you desire is the best for me. So would you please transform my desires so they become what you desire for me? But that's not even the best way to look at this verse. The best by far is this. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will become your desire. Not the details, just He is your desire. And that's what the verse is saying anyway. Delight yourself in what? The Lord. And He has, by definition, become your desire. He's what you want. He's what you get. Reminds me, Landis and I have talked much about Hebrews 11.6, where it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe Number one, that he exists. And secondly, that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And what is the reward? Him. That's what you get. As he said in uh, Genesis 15.1, Do not fear, Abram. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. I am what you get. I'm your inheritance. That's the best way to be. All right, we don't have time. Let's just keep going. Let's go to the next one. By purging out what is within. Can someone read James 4.1? So, Topher, what, is, what does that tell you is a powerful root of discontent? Just according to James 4.1, right? Sinful lusts and corruptions. The, the previous verse, we're talking about just benign blessings that we might desire, maybe even good blessings that we might desire. Like I remember for me as a single man, I would use Psalm 37.4 to talk about that God would provide me with a godly wife. There's nothing wrong with that, but you can go about it in the wrong way. You know, where the pursuit of a godly wife becomes, could become an idol. But I'm going to delight myself in the Lord and just, he will be enough for me. And if he should add the blessing of a godly wife, then it's, it's, you see, it's a different way of thinking. Now, here we're talking about something else. We're talking about sinful desires, corrupted desires that are wicked and within us. And so what do we have to do if we're going to be content in reference to those evil desires, those lusts? What does Burroughs say that must happen if we're going to be content? Well, he uses the word purge, purging out. So what does that mean, to purge out evil desires? Cleanse them out, purify me from all ungodliness, take out all evil desires from my heart. How does that happen? Well, that is very much the issue of sanctification, what we call negative sanctification or mortification. The the basic strategy given in the Bible is death by starvation. These desires don't die, but they get weaker. They get weaker, and you can, you can weaken them. So um, if somebody could read Romans 6.6 6 for us there. Very complex verse, very powerful verse on sanctification. Our old self is our old identity as a non-Christian person. It's your position in the first Adam. As a sinner under condemnation, under the law, that's who you were. What happened to that person, that old man, that old person, according to Romans 6, 6? Died at the cross. Died at the cross. Do not think that there's a progress, progressive aspect. No, if, if you live back in Palestine, back then you say, whatever happened to Titus? Oh, he was crucified last year. Oh, really? How's he doing? It's like, 
You, you didn't hear what I said. He was crucified last year. He's dead. <laughs> All right. So by that way of thinking, what happened to your old man, your old person, your old identity? Dead with Christ at the cross. But there's something else. In order that the body of sin might be, and the Greek word is rendered increasingly powerless. That's katargeo is an increasing powerlessness. What is being rendered increasingly powerless in Romans 6 6? What does it say? What is being rendered increasingly powerless? The, yeah, but what is it? The body of sin is being, as, as Brent said, brought to nothing, rendered powerless. What is the body of sin? Well, it's this thing, this mortal body, which is, you know, trained and ready right now to do sin. Okay? Been training it for years in sin. And this wretched body, this wicked body, this mortal body, Paul talks a lot about it. It's the only vehicle we have to serve Christ in this world, so we're stuck with it. And it's got indwelling sin, and it's got all of these drives and tendencies and desires. What has to happen? It has to be rendered increasingly powerless, the body of sin. Little by little by little by little, it's rendered increasingly powerless. So that an addiction to tobacco, an addiction to alcohol, an addiction to internet pornography, these addictions, they'll never go away finally. The alcoholic should never say 30 years later, well, I know I'll never, I'll never drink again. It's like, whoa, eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. We're never going to say that. You've got to stand on the walls and watch over your soul. But it's easier now, isn't it, than it was 30 years ago? Easier now. Why? Because you've little by little starved it. You've weakened it. Death by starvation. All right, you have to do that to be content. The lusts will make you discontent. By definition, they're going to drive you to discontent. Someone said, like, using internet pornography is like, like quenching thirst with salt water. As soon as you're done drinking, you're thirsty again, thirstier than you were before. And so it's an addiction. It's like, well, what's the answer? Don't do it. Put it to death. And you cannot kill it. And amazingly, it can't kill you either because you're eternal. You're alive forever. So here it is. You're locked in a battle. And so you must fight that battle if you're going to be content. Purge out the sinful desires from within. That's what he's saying. Next, living on the dew of God's blessing. This is a really hard image. This image of the grasshopper jumping from leaf to leaf and drinking the dew. I'm like, Burroughs, what in the world are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. Still don't, but I'm going to guess, all right? <clears throat> what he th I think what he's talking about is in the mixed, midst of trials, in the midst of afflictions, there's going to be secret, hidden, sustaining grace that God's going to give you. It's maybe not the full rain. It's not the, the autumn or spring rain, but he's going to give you the dew of his blessing. He's going to give you enough to get through today. He's going to give you little blessings along the way, and you're going to learn to live on that. You're going to learn to live on, maybe you don't have the, the, the central thing that you want, the healing or the whatever, but God's going to give you things to let you know he still loves you, that he's going to get you through, that you're going, going to heaven when you die. He's going to get you through. You will not be in a torture chamber or miserable every moment, but he's going to give you the dew of his blessings. That's what I think it is. All right. Could someone read James 1.17? Okay. So every, so we have to learn to be satisfied with smaller gifts of grace when that central kind of obvious gift of grace that you would like, he's chosen not to give you. Like if you have a, a son or daughter that's got a, a perhaps terminal cancer and you're, you know what you want, but he's not choosing yet to give you that healing. 
He's going to give you a hundred other smaller blessings to show you He still loves you, He still cares for you, and that you can live on that. A couple more things, but as I look over these headings, we're going to cover them in some of the classes that are yet to come. So, and it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm out of time. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.